You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. Once I started to just focus on trying to be helpful to other people and do what I can, the things that I need have just seemed to be provided for me. You know, and I find myself in a better situation than I ever could have navigated for myself. I am a great example of no matter what you have in the external world, If you aren't loving yourself, it doesn't really matter. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to feel a part of the whole and feel like life matters. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 167, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 23rd, 2014. Today we are speaking about gratitude in action. Are you grateful for the life you have? Maintaining gratitude, despite sometimes seemingly insurmountable difficulties, is an active process. Today, we speak with Sean McLaughlin about his personal experience, as outlined in Maine Magazine, about living gratefully, and with author Barb Schmidt about the ways in which she practices this process daily. Thank you for joining us. As listeners of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour know, it is always my great pleasure to spend time with people that I interact with on a regular basis, but um, have... Uh, more depth to their story than people might realize. One of these individuals is Sean McLaughlin, who is someone that I work with at 75 Market Street. Sean McLaughlin is the manager of a sober house in Portland. He also volunteers at Preble Street, is an AA sponsor to many, and speaks frequently about his struggle with addiction for local organizations here in Portland and in Boston, where he is from. Uh, Most importantly, I think, Sean has really become uh, quite a member of the 75 Market Street uh, family and works on the sales team, does a great job, and really seems to balance a lot of things. It's a pleasure to have you in today, Sean. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Your story is an interesting one because you kind of quietly dealt with some issues for a long, long time before you said, okay, you know what, this isn't working for me and I need to do things differently. But to all, I don't know, to all outside appearances, you didn't have any problems. In fact, everybody thought you were doing great. Yeah, my fears and insecurities um, were were there um, long before I picked up a drink or or a drug. Um, Drugs and alcohol were always medicinal for me, really, right from the beginning. It was something that helped me to uh, face the things that I wasn't able to without them um you know it it ended up manifesting the the fear and insecurity ended up manifesting itself uh with addiction um later on down the road um 
but yeah it was it was something that was always there i always had that feeling that um you know i was searching for happiness in all these places outside because i knew that you know internally i, I was lacking something you and i had the chance to talk about your story for um, the november issue of maine magazine you were you were raised in medford i was you have an older sister named Erin, who is a nurse, um, and a mother and father for knew each, who knew each other for 25 years. Um, and f- by your report, you you had it all. You star standout uh, lacrosse and baseball player. Um, you went to a prep school in your um, hometown area. You, you were you were sort of aiming for the stars. Tell me a little bit about what that was like growing up. I was fortunate. I had a great family. My mother, um, my my parents' marriage is is a, an example to me of, of what I would like to have in my life. Um, my sister's great. She's a nurse. My father's a court officer. Um, even my extended family's great. You know, I was very blessed. I went to private school. I had everything I ever wanted. I really did. Um, and um, I did have some success, you know. Um, my mother, um, my mother's sickness. My mother, my mother got cancer when I was probably 13 years old, um, and uh, things changed for me after that. Um, the reason why I I think that I was so maybe successful, if you will, or looked so from the outside, was because that was like the only thing that I cared about. You know, that's what drove me. You know, I made, uh, you know, the, the perception I had of myself was based entirely on what everybody else thought, you know, and I would do anything to, to keep up appearances and to impress people um, because inside, um, you know, I don't know, I was searching for, for something to kind of to fill that void, I guess you could say. Um, you know, um, after my mother uh, ended up being a remission, um, her and I had this bond. We had this amazing relationship. We were super close. Um, and uh, not until, you know, 15 years later when when things kind of came back to her and, and she got sick again, um, you know, did that change. But in the meantime, um, I continued to do that. And, and I think in a way the success that I had didn't, didn't hinder me, but it, it stopped me from... I don't know if you want to say hitting bottom or, or being forced to kind of look at my motives or my intentions, but because I, I kind of surrounded myself with the people that, like, would would co-sign, if you will, the stuff that I was doing. And I surrounded myself with industries where it was, like, not only acceptable to do what I was doing, but actually would make you succeed, you know? Um, I was in an industry where it's all about, you know, looks and appearances and parties and events and, you know, drinking and drug use is something that's not necessarily frowned upon. Um, you know, it was like kind of the glitz and the glam, and 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 that's like kind of the guy that I became. Even though, like deep down, I w- I would tell you that I was really never that person. Um, and as I had more and more success, I became more and more uncomfortable with who I was becoming, um, which led to just more. Um, you know, drinking and, and drug use. You know, afraid to kind of deal with those feelings. Why was it so important? Because it sounds like this started quite early. Why was it so important um, to have people regard you in a certain way? What what was the driver for that? I don't know. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, it's something that I still struggle with today. Um, you know, I I really um, for 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 whatever reason, you know, I would 
I would call it a spiritual malady. You know, I, I would say that I spiritually was looking for something, you know, and, and or I was missing something and I didn't know what it was. And I tried a lot of other things. It wasn't just, uh, you know, what people thought of me. It was, you know, my outward appearance, whether that's going to the gym five times a day or, you know, taking steroids, whether it's I need a different girlfriend and it's her fault or, you know, I need a new car, I need a new house. It was just I'm constantly searching for these things that are going to give me that, like, inner peace that I, I think that I need or that I, I'm missing. And as I, like, would check those off my list... You know, I'd get in the new car and kind of sigh to myself and say, oh, that didn't really do it. And then, you know, what else can I do? You know, looking back, I don't think that I was ever really even happy, you know, maybe as a kid. But other than that, I feel like my life was trying to collect things and put myself in situations to distract me from the fact that I was unhappy, you know. Um, and for me... I guess I, my answer would, to that question would be that it was a I, I was I had a spiritual malady I was spiritually sick and um, you know for me the only happiness was ever going to come from uh, you know inside and that was just something that I didn't know about and I probably wouldn't have been interested in even taking that path you know at that time you know drugs and alcohol ended up being something that brought me you know brought me down and also brought me to you know, the spiritual solution that most things or, or not many other things would bring me to. So for that, I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. After high school, you went on to college and um, you studied criminal justice. Yep. And you went to work for the sheriff's office. I did. And you rose in the ranks. They actually had you doing some special ops work. And then your mom got sick. And it was a very strange and freak thing because she had been in remission from her, she had neuroblastoma, she had been in remission from that, and she was going in for a procedure to get her ready for, um, it was more of a cosmetic procedure really, to get her ready for your sister's yeah, wedding. Yeah, yeah, she was, um, my sister was getting married and, and she had, uh, um, my sister, my, my mother rather, had some, some vision problems from where her incision line was and uh, she went in to kind of get, I guess, what would kind of be described as a mini facelift. Um, and I went with her um, at Mass General. I remember the day vividly. I remember the room. It was funny. Um, a few years later, I ended up there um, for... Um, for something completely different and I like was looking around the room and like they brought me in the same actual office and everything and I just had like these flashbacks about it kind of but it was definitely like a moment that I'll remember you know we went in and uh and she had this procedure that took all of five minutes I held her hand I was in the room with her sitting right next to her it didn't seem like a big deal um we went home we went to the wedding which was great um a couple weeks later and uh and not too long after that um she just had some irritation in her in her head, and, and it looked like kind of like a rash. And um, you know, where that was around the incision line, we were kind of sensitive to that. So so she went into the hospital, and um, and she had this like staph infection, um, like right away. We went in for like a quick checkup, and they ended up like taking her, you know, by ambulance. And she had like an emergency surgery that night. Um, you know, and at the time, it was uh, like thank God that that happened that we caught it. Uh, so she went to Spalding Rehab for a few weeks, came home, um, and, and, and we were pretty grateful that, that they caught it so early. Um, and then she went back for 
you know, for a checkup a few weeks later to make sure that everything was still gone and it, and it was back again, just as bad as it was before. Um, you know, so they tried a different surgery, and then you know it didn't really go away. And the third time they tried a more invasive surgery, um, and then that would continue for you know the better part of two and a half years, where it was you know a trach for a little bit. She was on, and then it was you know the, the surgeries got more and more invasive. She was home less and less. She was better for less period in between. Um, and uh, and things just got really bad. She went through a lot of pain. It was it was difficult to see her and my father go through that. Um, you know, and for me personally, on my end, it was um, something that I used as an excuse to just continue what I was doing, uh, and even you know further it even more. Um, you know, I would like to say that I was there for my family and I stepped up and, you know, I tried to take care of my father and my mother, but that wasn't really the reality. I was already, I was definitely trying to escape at that point and I was, you know, unable to be accountable. You know, I wasn't able to be de dependent on, relied on. Even when I was there, even when I was in the hospital, even when I was with my family, I wasn't like really there. You know, I wasn't really present. Um, again, it was, I was really concerned about myself you know I was selfish that was like the biggest problem that I had you know my mother's sick and my father's been with her since he was you know 13 years old and in my head I'm, I'm worried about you know poor me you know and I'm losing my mother and I'm going through this and you know I really did you know that's kind of the way that I looked at things at the time you know I felt bad for myself over it you weren't really the person that ever um, took pills or drank a lot I mean, you weren't really the sort who partied. You were always very careful about your body and what went into it until you hit a certain point, and then you just gave in. Yeah, I, um, you know, I was an athlete in high school. I, I, I drank like some kids do in high school. No, I, I mean, I guess you're underage, so it's pro probably not normal. But, you know, I, I drank a little bit in high school, college a little bit more. Um, I don't know. My mother was super protective of me, and she had me, uh, I guess, afraid more than anything else. It was just drugs weren't something that I was going to do, um, you know. And as people gravitated towards that in high school and certainly in college, um, you know, I stayed clear of it. Even though I was in the, those environments, um, you know, at the parties, at the nightclubs, at the bars, that was just something I didn't do, and people didn't really ask me to. They knew that that was kind of my stance, and they respected it, and I respected them. Um, I remember it as uh, I got more and more kind of uncomfortable with myself and uncomfortable with the situation with my mother. And, you know, again, I was letting it affect work and I was letting it affect my focus. And um, it's funny, I do remember, you know, specifically the night that, uh, you know, I was out with my friends and we were getting ready to go into Boston. And, um, and I kind of like made a conscious decision to say, you know what, I don't even really care anymore. And, um, I don't know. The reason why I think I, I, I held off so long or that I didn't do anything was because I, maybe deep down I knew that it wasn't going to be good for me, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, handle it. I'm a guy that, you know, if I start going to the gym, I'm going to go five times a day and dedicate my whole life to it. And, and, and that's the way that I, I kind of, uh, you know, take things on. So I, I think maybe I always deep down knew that, you know, if I was to go down that road, that I would do the same thing. And, uh, and ultimately, that's what happened. I remember specifically that night, kind of, uh, you know, giving in or, or whatever, if it, whatever, if you will. And um, you know, that opened 
that opened doors for me for me that I, I, I wasn't able to close for the next better part of seven years, you know. Here on Love Main Radio, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial. Making peace with your finances is easier said than done. We've spent a lifetime being programmed by our beliefs and behaviors interacting with our inherited nature. Making peace with all of that is one of the biggest steps forward you can take. It's a step that can certainly remove a lot of anxiety from your life. Consider this scenario that a lot of us have gone through or that you may be going through right now. You have money to support yourself and your family, but it's not always there at the right time, or you don't believe that you can access it. That happened to me recently and also in a big way in 2008. Like you, I have experienced these financial highs and lows. It feels as though you're on some kind of a strange roller coaster and that you're constantly wrestling with what you want versus what you need. You've got bills and really want to pay them off. You're sort of living in the past so you can move forward. Finding peace in the middle of our culture can make it difficult to make good financial decisions, especially if you're waiting for the other shoe to drop. The first step is to stop and breathe. Look around. Walk around. Talk to people. Trade and commerce are going to happen. Money is what makes it easier. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, and we will help you evolve with your money peacefully. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. Love Main Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. You went into a 12-step program. I did. And you did it twice. I did. Yes. So what was the first rock bottom? My, I mean, ultimately my drug use just came to the point where I, you know, I think another thing that extended it for me was that I could, I could afford it you know, for a while, realistically, that's pretty much all that it was, you know, and I would look at people once I knew that I had a problem, um, you know, I'd start going to meetings and I, and, uh, and I would look at the other people there and I, and I would compare myself to them and, and I would have a suit on and a car in the parking lot and a job and a house and a girlfriend and a dog. And I would tell myself that although I know, um, that what I'm doing, um, you know, isn't normal, isn't right, and something needs to change. Um, I'm not like these people, um, and uh, and so I guess um, you know I, I took a I switched jobs because I thought that it was the the liquor was the problem. So I, I started working for a different company, um, and uh, we ended up the company ended up closing. And you know, for the first time in a while, I wasn't making the big money and. Um, I was home a lot more in front of my girlfriend and my family, and they kind of saw what was going on. And, um, 
you know, ultimately everything just kind of came crashing down as far as finances and my health and, uh, you know, my relationships with people. And I had, I was lucky enough to have a friend, um, that had, um, had been through something similar and went to, uh, this 12 step retreat in New Hampshire, um, and suggested that I, that I go there. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, when I went there, uh, I wasn't really familiar with, um, you know, 12 step program other than the meetings that I went to, which to be honest, where I'm from, aren't really, um, you know, based around the 12 steps. Um, you know, they, they have them on the wall and they talk about them here and there, but it's not really what they do. Um, so I went to the place in New Hampshire, um, and that was the first time that I was exposed to, you know, a 12 step program where, you know, they revealed to me that I was the problem, you know, um, that it wasn't drugs and alcohol. Someone actually sat in front of me and told me that, uh, much like myself, they, at a certain point, were drinking and doing drugs every day, and then they stopped, and their life got worse, you know? And that's when I kind of, like, sat up, and I said, well, you know, you can't say that stuff, you know? Someone's going to beat you up in the parking lot if you say something like that, you know, in Boston at a meeting. But in reality, that was my experience, you know? And I heard someone say that to me, you know? Um, because that, that was my experience, you know? Um, I tried to not drink and, and to not pick up drugs, and I did for a while, and... Uh, and like I said, I didn't get better, I got worse. You know, in maybe I got better in all the ways that, you know, it looks like on the outside. Um, you know, I have a little bit more money, obviously, because I'm not I'm not spending $1,000 a day. And, you know, I look a little bit better because I'm sleeping maybe. And, you know, people at work think that I'm great because I'm working 18 hours a day. So, like, some things get a little bit better just if you're not, you know, doing drugs constantly, ironically enough. Um, but where it counts, you know, uh, in my heart, in my in my head, like, I knew that, you know, I was getting worse. It was only a matter of time. Um, so this was the first time that I was exposed to that when I was in New Hampshire. Um, and I'd like to sit here and say that, you know, and, and ever since then, things have been great for me. And, um that wasn't that wasn't my experience um you know unfortunately for me uh i did what i've always done my whole life and and what that is is i sacrifice any long-term happiness for you know that short-term pleasure again you know um i was willing to do anything or go to any length um until i got some things back you know and then things changed for me you know so when i went there originally i had nothing and my relationships were terrible and i had no job um and you know my life was a mess um and then all of a sudden i'm given another great job and people like me again and my girlfriend trusts me again and i feel a little bit better and now all of a sudden the things that i'm willing to do aren't really the same things that i'm willing to do you know i need to do 12-step work and i need to live this life but I need to do it um, as much as a smart, educated guy like myself needs to do it, which is like a little bit less than everybody else, you know. So you hit that bottom. You went back to the 12-step program. This time you really believed that, okay, I, I've got to do something because what I've been doing doesn't isn't working for me. You stayed there. You really started to work more at this process. And they asked you to stay on at the 12-step yeah, yeah. um, program. And then when you were done, they said, why don't you go to Portland? Yeah. And that's how you ended up here. It is, yeah. Which is about, it's two years ago? Yeah. Two years Just ago? Just about. Um, a year and a half, yeah. And you've been working since then. You worked, first you stayed in a halfway house. Yeah. 
And then you were asked to manage a halfway house, but with this understanding that you're still actively involved in your own oh, yeah, sobriety. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I would like to say, like, you know, I went back to the place in New Hampshire with this, like, you know, better outlook. And the reality is that I just tried it my way and it didn't work. So, like, I can't really take all the credit for, you know, going back and and uh, and doing it differently. I mean, I guess I did, but uh, it was because at this point I had tried everything else, you know. So I didn't really have a leg to stand on to go back there and say, um, I'm unwilling to do it completely 100% your way this time, you know, because my experience showed me that my way brings me back there. Um, you know, I kind of was ready to do whatever it took, you know, to take the suggestions. And um, what that looked like was to stay there for a few extra months. You know, I was in New Hampshire for, for three months in the middle of the woods, you know, working on working on myself and uh, trying to be a maximum help to others. The part of that program where you stay there longer is, you know, you're clearly still working on your own issues and you're in early sobriety, but it's an opportunity to help the new guy, um, you know, show people around, just kind of be, um, you know, be there for other people in a way that uh, I never really was, you know. It was already at that point a feeling of, uh, you know, kind of usefulness that I that I hadn't had in a long time, you know. Um, I made a few amends trips while I was up there back to Boston, you know, and I'd come back up, um, and that experience was, was crazy. And another thing that I was unwilling to do the first time. So an amend trip would be to go make amends to yeah, somebody that you've Yeah, you know, part of what we do is, um, you know, we make a list of all people that we've harmed, and we become willing to make amends to them all, you know, and then we go and do so, um, which is a big part of what, what the program is all about, you know. Um, and that was something that I kind of came right up to that point the first time, you know, and that's when I kind of started to hit the brakes a little bit. You know, you're expecting me to go to these people that, like, think a lot of me, um, you know, that I might be working for in the future and tell them about things that I've done that they don't even know about. Um, you know, and, and so I said this time, you know, let's do it. And I started doing some of the more difficult ones that I didn't want to do. Um and that's again another thing things started changing for me having some some amazing experiences through that um you know positive negative you know um they never went the way that you know you thought they were gonna go um and again you know i'm willing and i'm doing what they're asking me to do yet now i'm ready to go back to boston you know and, and then comes the end of june and they suggest that i go to portland maine and 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 now I hit that thing again where like I, I got this now I, I can take it from here I'm glad I stayed longer than the first time but you know now I now I have it now I can take my will back now you know I can I can go back to my job my career and not go to to Portland Maine which when I pictured Portland Maine in my head it was like you know the woods and like a log cabin <laughs> and it gets better because you are. It was the summertime in Maine in a room that wasn't air conditioned. A it tiny was, room. It was that tiny. You had a you had a roommate. I did. It slept like two feet away from me. And they expected you also to volunteer until you Imagine had that, huh? meaningful <laughs> employment. Right. So you began work at Preble Street. I did. Yes. Where, it's it's a whole other world. It is. I were I went, I volunteered down there, uh, kicking and screaming. To be honest with you. So so when I finally said okay, I'll go to Portland, now. You know, for me, that looks like going to the beach every day and and kind of just uh, relaxing and and uh, and again. So I keep constantly hitting those like, yes, I'll do that, but now here's the next thing I'm not going to do. You know, um, 
So for me, that was volunteer work, and, and ultimately I ended up going down to Preble Street and started volunteering down there. Um, then honestly, that place um, and the people there uh, changed my life. You know, um, so I'm volunteering down there. We needed to get a job per the house, and um, Sue Ellen, who's a kitchens manager down there, approached me one day and said, "You know, what are you doing for work?" Um, and she offered me the position down there as like a full time person in the kitchen, um, which is emptying trucks and you know, um, you know, cooking breakfast and cleaning the tables off and just kind of doing whatever needs to be done, really. Um, and uh, I remember like looking at the application, taking it home, and like thinking. You know, part of this whole program is to get out of my own way and the right things. If I just do what I'm supposed to be doing, which I felt like I was at that point, maybe reluctantly, but I was doing it, um, you know, the next right thing will be revealed to me. You know, what's the next right thing that I'm supposed to do? And I would pray about it and I would meditate on it. And, uh, you know, and then I'm, I'm handed a job application by someone, you know. And uh, so for me to look at that and say, like, this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, would be lying to myself. So I take the job at Preble Street and... Um, and I start working there every day and uh, just the experiences down there, you know, with the clients and, and with the people. And, you know, I, I've never been in an environment where people went to work every day to help other people and they wanted to be there, you know, and they made a difference, you know, and uh, and see some of the gratitude on people's faces that that, uh, you know, the way I looked at things previously, you know, I wouldn't look at them as people that should have been grateful for anything, you know, Um and uh, it just it just made me look at things differently day in and day out. You know, yeah, I'm going back to my tiny room with no air conditioner and a roommate and, and house rules and all this stuff that I don't want to do. But then every single day I would go to work and, and see things for how they really are and realize how, how blessed I am, you know, and how grateful I am to be there. And, um, you know, I say it and, and it's not not a joke at all. I, I mean it completely. That became the best job I ever had. Um, you know, I worked there for the better part of a year until, you know, a few months ago. Um, and the relationships that I formed down there are ones that, you know, I'll keep forever. Um, you know, Sue Ellen's become one of the most important people in my life. I talk to her daily, her husband, um, you know, the other people that I've met down there um, are people that, you know, have helped me out more than I'll ever help out anybody that, you know, that I work with. Um, and then all of a sudden, as I started doing that, you know, I started finding myself, um, you know, being around the house more and, and guys started coming to me for help. And all of a sudden, the guys that were at that sober house that I moved into when I moved in were gone. And I was the senior guy. You know, I had been there for nine months and there were new kids coming in a month sober that just wanted to go to the beach every day and refused to volunteer. Right. And I looked at them and I was like, wow, you know, um, you know, I know where you're coming from. I know you don't want to be up here. I know you want to be in Boston. You know, trust me. And I would bring them down to Preble Street with me and um, and introduce them to everybody and let them, you know, see them be useful and helpful to other people for the first time in their life, some of them, you know, and see the the, the looks on their faces and, and have the experiences of seeing somebody else start to get better is what really ultimately, I think, changed kind of the way I look at things. And you were asked to become um, the co-manager at this new house that was being o opened up by the 12-step retreat out of New Hampshire. Yep. Um, which is where you are now. Yeah. By by day, you work 
here at yep. Maine Magazine, Old Port Magazine. By night, you are with um, this group of men, ages 19 to 50-something, yeah. all of whom are in various stages of sobriety, just like you. And you continue to work at Preble Street. You also have um, spent time working with Share Our Strength um, with a friend that you knew from Medford, John Woods. Yep. Um, and and you're, this feels all still very new to you. It does. Um yeah, I actually moved in there. So so now again, I come up on this. I'm coming up on, you know, I'm a year sober. What am I going to do next? Am I going back home? Um, and then I'm asked to, um, you know, manage this house that they're opening, this new house. Um, and so, again, there it is, right? You know, the next right thing is revealed to me. So um, so I take the position and, um, you know, I move into the house. And, um, you know, I just started trying to... Um, you know, put myself out there, you know, and help other people. And, um, you know, all of a sudden, all these opportunities to be helpful came up, you know, like you said, John Woods, who's, you know, family, he's a friend, he's a mentor. Um, you know, I started working with him on a couple different things for share our strength. And, um, you know, he ultimately, uh, gave me an introduction to the people here at, at uh, the magazine. And, um, you know, again, it's just another example of, of my life today. Um, once I, I started to just focus on trying to be helpful to other people and, and, and do what I can, you know, um, the things that I need have just seemed to be provided for me, you know, and I find myself in a better situation than I ever could have navigated for myself, you know, because the reality is once I take that control back and I try to put things together the way that I need them to be together, um, it doesn't go well, you know, um, and to say that, uh, you know, the, the things that I have in my life today, you know, how grateful I am for exactly where I am. You know, I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be for the first time ever, you know, professionally, um, you know, at the house that I'm at, um, you know, in Maine, ironically enough. Um, you know, the love that has been shown to me by the, the state, the people here, the people at Preble Street, the people, you know, here at 75 Market, the people that I interact with every day um, is something that I'm, I'm just overflowing with gratitude for, honestly. Well, your story is one that I know is to be continued. I know this is one that um, people are going to be interested in kind of continuing to watch. You're out in the community. You're sharing your story. You're a sponsor for... Um, various people who are going through sobriety or working at the sober house and you are really willing to share and you have already said to me you know I don't have the answers you're not coming out there as somebody who is who has achieved sobriety you're somebody no, who is no, no, in the no. process absolutely of. absolutely I mean you know I'm a work in progress um you know I think I, I sit here with you know 18 months sober um which is which is relatively early sobriety. You know, that's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing for me is I say that and I'm relatively happy every day. You know, and it's not because it's nice out or, or because I have a lot of money or because I have a nice car or because my girlfriend was nice to me or any of that stuff. Um, it's because I do what I have to do today to maintain that internal happiness, you know, to maintain that fit spiritual condition, you know. And what that looks like is being helpful to the guys at my house, you know, and coming to work and working hard and uh, trying to put myself out there and, you know, bring love and compassion to every situation that I'm in, um, you know, and I fall short constantly, um, but that's what I strive for today. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and say, uh, you know, I hope I don't use today, you know, 
I don't take that for granted, you know, and, and I acknowledge it every morning, you know, and I take a I take a first step every morning and acknowledge the fact that, you know, my life was unmanageable and I was powerless. And, um, you know, and at night, uh, you know, I'm thankful for that. So it's not something that I take for granted. But to say that there's no time, uh, you know, throughout my day, no energy exerted to to fight drinking or to fight using is, is the reality, you know, Um you know, for me, it is all those other things that I was afraid to do today that I can do, you know, because I'm still that guy that, you know, will make $100,000, but I think that this should be, you know, a parade if I pay my car insurance, you know, like that's just, you know, that's 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 who I was, you know, and now I, I do that stuff today. It's like a big deal to me, you know, it's like to have a different relationship with my nieces and nephews that, you know, I want to go down there and visit them, and the time that I spend with them is just, like, amazing to me, you know, rather than worrying about what I'm doing next or, or I have to go there, you know. It's like I can be accountable today. My family calls me for advice, you know. Um, people in this community call me and, and ask me to speak at, you know, a school or, you know, a sober house or, you know, I spoke at the state house or whatever it might be. Um, you know, that blows my mind that... that uh, that people would ask me to do that in the end that that's what I choose to do, you know, and that's what I want to do, you know, because I, that's just so far from the person that I was, you know, I was selfish and, um, you know, it was all about what I could get out of life, you know, and, and I've come to find out that, you know, it's not that it's what you give, you know, and, um, and I think that what I went through was one of the only, it's a unique experience that would bring me to that realization, you know, so, you know, it goes back to like what we were talking about the other day. You know, I have a prayer that is, you know, give me the difficulties in my life that will open my heart to compassion, you know. And I just find that for me and for most people, I think, you know, I've learned the most about myself and grown the most spiritually through the difficulties I've had. You know, spiritual experiences for me are, are, are tough and they're, and, they're, and they're gross and icky and they're things that I have to walk through that are not comfortable. And I come out on the other side walking through a fear, doing something I didn't want to do. Um, and I'm and I'm happy and grateful that I did it, you know. And it gives me moments today that I can, I can have just like great experiences with my family and friends. Well, Sean, I appreciate your coming in and um, sharing your story with me again, but also with the people who are listening. Uh, for people who would like to hear more about your story, they can read the article in the November issue of Maine Magazine. Obviously, you are available if people would like to speak with you here at Maine Magazine and Oldport Magazine. Uh, we've been speaking with Sean McLaughlin, who is um, many things, but um, is continuing to work through the things in his life that have um, the things in your life that have troubled you. And I give you a lot of credit for that. And I give you a lot of credit for being willing to share with us today. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I can't imagine that I will ever be an artist. While I appreciate all kinds of art, I know that creating it is just something I'm not able to do. I don't have that kind of talent, and I find myself in awe of the people who do, realizing that all of us have different and unique abilities and that we can't be good at everything is a tough thing to admit. It's a lesson I teach my children, but it's a lesson we all need to remind ourselves of as adults. Recognizing your strengths and talents early are keys to happiness and success. 
and leveraging those talents that others have is another key to a success. So while I may never have a gallery exhibition of my artwork, I find great joy in knowing that what I and my entire team have is the talent to help businesses run better. We are the leverage an entrepreneur needs to be successful. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Last night, I downloaded a book called The Practice, and I spent some time reading it, and I really, it was such a gentle and lovely way to end my day and to cause me to think about the way that I live my life that I was excited to meet with Barb Schmidt. And today we have Barb in the studio with us. Barb Schmidt is a lecturer and founder of Peaceful Mind, Peaceful Life, an international best-selling author of The Practice, Simple Tools for Managing Stress, Finding Inner Peace, and Uncovering Happiness. What's really great is that Barb is actually from Florida and just happens to be in Maine today. So thanks so much for coming in. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Your book really, as I said, is is just very gentle, very approachable. Um, and you say it in the introduction, simple tools. What you're suggesting that we have, which is a peaceful mind, peaceful life, is achievable. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You came to this through lots of hard work, though. I did. Really hard work. So tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about your background and how you came to realize, I need to do something a little bit different. Yeah, Lisa, I'd love to. Um, So I've been practicing for 30 years, and what got me on this path of practicing, um, I grew up very unhappy, um, always looking for some way to fit in, some way to feel like I mattered, some way to feel like I was worthwhile because I didn't feel any of those things. Um, It was a difficult home life. Both of my parents were alcoholics, so it was hard never really knowing which end was up and just always feeling like I was in the outside looking in on life. But had this little spark in me that knew that there was a way um, that things could be better. They just knew that this couldn't be how it needed to be. So growing up and trying to reconcile those two of feeling like I knew that I had to find another way, but it was difficult to find another way, I ended up um, becoming bulimic at around um, 19, 20 years old, and that lasted about six or seven years. And just one day I woke up ready to go to work and thought I can't go to work. Um, this, I just felt too depleted, too depressed, too whatever you want to call it. And I was reading the newspaper and saw an anniversary of Karen Carpenter's death, who was one of my favorite, favorite, favorite singers of all time. And she was talking about her anorexia. They were talking about her anorexia and her bulimia and what caused her to die at such a young age. And the next day I checked myself into a treatment center. And that just changed my whole life. Um, Being in treatment, um, having hit that bottom that they say and having... uh, felt so alone and just not okay with my life, always searching for happiness. Being in treatment, I was able to start talking about all the things that were causing me to feel this way from the inside. And I actually felt like someone who was let out of jail. For the first time in my life, I thought, well, this is really fabulous. I felt good. And in this treatment center, they their treatment for bulimia, anorexia, alcoholism, all of that was the 12 steps. So I felt 
comfortable and alive and incredible and leaving that treatment center after six weeks the 11th step of AA is sought through prayer and meditation to deepen my conscious contact with God as I understand him or her and so I just went on a massive search of knowing that that was what was going to keep me well and keep me happy but also it was really what I knew that I needed to really make something um, incredible in my life I just had that deep knowing so went on this search and went on retreat after retreat after retreat with all the great teachers of meditation and spirituality and wholeness and uh, 30 years later here I am today at 57 years old very happy and people ask me you know what what does happiness mean and it doesn't mean that I wake up just um, ecstatic every single day I wake up every day grateful to be alive it's an it's like an underlying sense of gratitude and knowing how strong and how much I matter uh, I didn't care for myself very much as I alluded to but knowing that I do love myself today and I do matter you can handle anything you can really get on with your life every single day knowing that it's a great blessing to be alive so that's hopefully a little in a short little capsule my life path for 57 years and it's been my blessing to share what I have learned as a as a result of these 30 years of practice uh, helping people find their own inner strength and it, it matters greatly that you become your own advocate you become your own teacher you become your own best friend and so that's my biggest mission and passion with peace of mind peaceful life is helping people see you're not at the mercy of the external world and you're not at the mercy and you don't need to um, have another person uh, to, to um, be your um, crutch or to be your leaner. And you can find guidance and teaching from so many great people, but ultimately you really need to know your own worth and your own well-being and your own sense of greatness uh, by yourself and really because of yourself and know that how great you are. So I'm on this massive mission to help people see that. You were the oldest of five children, I believe, raised, raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. It seems as though you might have been called upon, especially if you had parents with an alcohol issue, to really um, take care of a lot of people from quite an early age. Yeah, I did. I did. And I think that um, really there was a blessing being raised. It was that we were a very strict Catholic home, so I did go to Mass all the time. And so even with all the dysfunction of the alcoholism, there was that sense of, we do go to Mass, and we do pray, and we do, um, I taught catechism when I was in middle school. So all this dysfunction going on around me, I still had that sense. So I think I say in the book, there was a part of me, do I want to be a nun, or do I want to be rich and famous? Because I would watch TV, that girl, Marla Thomas, with that, that really dates me. I love watching that show, and I loved her flying around, running around New York City with her long black hair, and I thought, I want to be like that. But then I would go to Mass on Sunday, and I would teach catechism in middle school, and I'd think, I want to be like that. I want to be a nun. So I think my whole life has been a search of how do you bring those two together. Um, one of my very favorite teachers and one of my closest friends who did a beautiful um, testimony in the book, uh, Tenzin Palmo, the Buddhist nun, she is such a beautiful example of living in a cave, but when you spend time with her, she's just like us, and I love her so much. You don't have to go live in a cave. You don't have to leave the life that you're in. You just really need to stay grounded within yourself and find that deep um, strength within yourself to live your life. So you're kind of living in your cave for a little while in the morning and for a little while a minute here and a minute there during the day. And then when you go to sleep, you kind of go back into your cave and let the day go and then go on with your life. So I found a way to be in 
in my cave, so to speak, or within, but also be in the world. So we can be in the world and be in ourselves all at the same time. It's really my greatest passion is to help people see that you just have to get connected with yourself first and then go out and live your life. You suggest that you start the day in meditation. Mm -hmm. And we have more and more uh, started to understand that meditation has tremendous health benefits, emotional benefits, um, and has become more mainstream. But when you began this process, I believe it was in the 80s, mm -hmm. it wasn't that mainstream at all, especially I believe you were living in Florida at that yes. time. Yes. So yeah. what was that like to be doing something that people around you and needing to get up at 4.30 in the morning, yeah. you know, before your daughter got up, what was that like for you? It was very private. I have to say, I say now I run a meditation class that I've been doing for uh, 16 years now in Florida. And when people come today, they say, how long have you been here? I say, 16 years. They said, oh my gosh, where have you been? I said, underground. <laughs> it was kind of, um, I, I, I think today I feel like it was a great blessing because, because it wasn't so mainstream, because most people, if I would even talk about it, thought it was nuts or I was... Uh, this Eastern um, crazy person, or uh, they would always label me as a Hindu or a Buddhist. And I would say, no, I'm not really any of those things. I'm just, I love practicing and um, or studying and learning about all these great religions and truths, but I don't really practice any of them. I'm just trying to find my own way. It was difficult because people didn't get it. So I think what I love about how I had to practice was it was very um, personal and it was very much my own practice. So I think it helped shape who I am today. One of the things I say a lot is that we can quietly change the world. We can be out there and be strong in our own beliefs, but we don't have to be out there trying to shake up the world to do what we think that they need to do. We can do our own thing. And now um, I have so many people always saying to me, wow, you're so centered, you're so calm, you're so this, you're so that. I said, it's been 30 years. You know, it didn't happen overnight. But I think if you stick with your own practice and not have this need to feel like I have to tell everybody what I'm doing, I have to get them to do what I'm doing, or I can't do it unless everybody else agrees with me or believes in me, or it really strengthens your own resolve of who you are. So I think it helped me get grounded in my own self and feel confident that I can be exactly who I am without needing the acceptance and the approval of the external world. And now meditation is so mainstream. Now it's great. I mean, I can talk about it all day long and people are like, oh my gosh, can you teach us how to do it a little bit more simply or can you help us understand it better, which is where I am today, helping people understand it better. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor 
Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. Some people still think, oh, meditation, I can't, I need to sit on the floor with uh, folded legs. And you point out in the book, you can sit in a chair. Um, you know, some people believe you have to go whole hog into a yoga practice and uh, and you have to do it, you know, five hours a day for the rest of your life. And I think in the book, you said, you know, you're better off to do five minutes of something always and just have that in your in your practice. Um, so making it more accessible, I think that is the step that we next need to take on that. So if you start the day in meditation, another um, important thing that you ask people to do or suggest that they might find benefit from is having a mantra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when I studied, when I went on this search, I, I, went on, I started studying all the major religions of the world. And when I was in my Buddhist phase of studying Buddhism, they, I think what I love the most, they do call it meditation, obviously, but most Buddhists that you're with, they call it my sit time. I did my sit today. So I really took that to heart and thought, meditation is just sitting with yourself. So how can we feel like we can start our day without really being with ourselves? So it's really helped me cultivate my own love of myself by spending time with myself. So when we do that, we get really um, grounded within ourselves. We feel comfortable with ourselves with that quiet time of sitting. And so then how do we carry that throughout the rest of the day? Because when I come out of my meditation, even if I've been the whole time sitting there bringing my mind back because it's been distracted the whole time, I still feel a sense of connectedness and peace within as I'm walking out of my space. So how do I carry that throughout the day? And it is the repetition of a mantra. If we think about meditation, we're really training ourselves to be in the moment. So the mind is going off and going off. We're training ourselves by bringing it back to the moment, bringing it back to the moment. So to carry that thread of peace that I talk about or that thread of connectedness, we need to look at ways in our lives that we can be more one-pointed. Not every place, because I know that's really difficult to try to be right here, right now with every single thing we're doing, but find one or two that you can be focused on and then use a mantra to bring your mind back to the moment or if things are crazy when I get stressed out I stop you can also write your mantra and I believe you described um, an individual being on a plane at a pretty important time tell and tell us how that worked out it was so amazing I love to write my mantra Um, it's a very powerful uh, practice to sit and write this um, sacred word over and over again. It's it's really just about the power of prayer when you go into prayer circles or meditation circles. So a good friend of mine was on an airplane when, when 9-11 happened, and his plane was diverted to Canada. And they were on the plane for more than 24 hours, which all of us know. We heard all those stories about people being stranded on airplanes. And he had this practice of writing his mantra. So he got his little notebooks out, which I carry one with me everywhere I go, and started writing his mantra. And after a while, the people on the plane, you know, the craziness and, and just the sheer um, uh, fear of what was going on, started asking him, what were you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So he started teaching people to write the mantra. So if you kind of close your eyes and imagine that for a minute, I remember when he was telling me his story, I started to cry because I thought, what a, I felt really grateful that I had this practice. And I thought, what an amazing um, uh, uh, situation to be in. We all know how we all felt during that whole time of 9 11. And to be able to really 
used the practice that I've been practicing for all those years, he really was able to call upon it in an emergency, really life and death situation. Um, and it, it calmed him. And he said it actually ended up calming a lot of people on the plane. So it's, it's a very powerful, I call it a tool because it, it's sacred and powerful, but it really is just a tool. It's really just a mechanical practice of bringing your mind back from the fear into the present moment where you know you have no control. That was one thing he said to me. So Barbie said, being in a situation, really knowing that I had absolutely no control. At first, I panicked. I thought, whoa, we can't get off this plane. We can't do anything. I don't know what's going on outside this plane. I know it's bad. He said, I first panicked, and then I thought, nope, now this is the time to use this tool to practice it for the next over 24 hours. Powerful. And that is often the way that it goes, is if we practice something when we don't need it, that when we need it, you just can pull it up from wherever it is. Yeah. You can pull out your notebook. You can pull out your time to meditate, that yeah. sort of thing. So exactly. that's, that's what the practice really does for you. It is exactly beautifully said. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> it's beautiful. It is. That's why it's kind of why I chose practice, the word practice. It, it matters that you practice. Yeah. I encourage people who are listening to pick up a copy of The Practice, Simple Tools for Managing Stress, Finding Inner Peace, and Uncovering Happiness. Also, to go to your website, which is? BarbSchmidt.com or PeacefulMindPeacefulLife.org. And and to learn more about the work that you're doing. And it, it's really... Um, it's just it's a very gentle and yet very uh, affecting way of approaching things. So I appreciate the work that you've done over the course of your life and your willingness to share this with us. Thank you, Lisa. It's been a real joy to be here this morning. Yeah. Um, we've been speaking with Barb Schmidt. She's a lecturer and the founder of Peaceful Mind, Peaceful Life, and international best-selling author of The Practice. Um, enjoy the rest of your time in Maine. Thank you. It's a beautiful, beautiful state. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 167, Gratitude in Action. Our guests have included Sean McLaughlin and Barb Schmidt. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit themainmag.com backslash radio. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my daily running photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Gratitude in Action show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Hardingly Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. 
Our online editor is Kelly Clinton. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love, Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Thank you.